It's Friday, June 30th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. Friday, June 30th, a very special day in Pennsylvania. As I record this, we're just a few hours away from the deadline for Pennsylvania lawmakers to approve a 2017-2018 state budget. Now, the situation is still pretty fluid, and we are mindful of the fact that uh, some of our listeners may be hearing this a days or weeks hence, uh, so bear that in mind. But as of right now, it appears that the Department of Environmental Protection and the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, two very important agencies for our work at PEC, are in for what looks to be another year of uh, inadequate funding from the state. Well, against this backdrop, the state Supreme Court also recently handed down a pair of important rulings on cases relating to the environment and the state's role in protecting and regulating it. This is part of how government and regulation and oversight works, and it's a long, drawn-out process in some cases. It's a long, messy process. There is a lot going on in Harrisburg right now, lots to unpack, and I personally am hardly qualified to do that work. Fortunately, we have a number of people at PAC who are more than qualified, and we have two of the best today to go over these issues, PAC President David Woodwell and our Senior Vice President for Legal and Government Affairs, John Walliser. They'll be along shortly to uh, do a deep dive on state government issues as this fiscal year runs out. That's coming up. There's a bit of a water fight going on this summer all along the Upper East Coast. Not the fun kind of summertime water fight, though, with uh, squirt guns and water balloons. This is the kind that involves a lot of paperwork, a lot of complex negotiations and political dynamics that uh, we're going to wrestle with a little bit today. To set the stage, Pennsylvania, if you're not already familiar with this arrangement, and our listeners in the Philadelphia area may be, but for the rest of us, Pennsylvania is one of four states that share a supply of drinking water drawn from the Delaware River. Uh, This happens under a Supreme Court decree from the 1950s. The water comes from upstream up the Delaware in several reservoirs in New York State that are owned and managed by New York City. The terms of that system, which again has been in place for 63 years, were updated in 1983. So that's the most recent revision. It's known as Revision 1. Under Revision 1, a certain amount of water is released, and each of the parties to the agreement draw their allotted quantity from that from that release. So that's, that's fairly defined. For the last few years, though, the Delaware has been managed according to a somewhat less restrictive, somewhat less formal agreement among the states and New York City, which again owns the reservoirs. This is called the Flexible Flow Management Plan, or FFMP, and it allows for some variation in the prescribed flow rates along the Delaware in order to maintain the river's base flow as conditions change from uh, day to day and from season to season. This is very important to maintain the health of the river and the and the river basin. This is a delicate arrangement, obviously, uh, not just technically, but politically and administratively. It has to be renewed every few years by unanimous agreement among all the parties, which again, consists of four states, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware, as well as New York City, all have to agree on this. That has been happening with some regularity up until this summer. And uh, a few weeks ago, the states actually missed their deadline to extend the plan. And that means we've reverted back to the previous version of the rules, uh, again, revision one. Now, that has some fairly uh, far-reaching implications potentially for the whole region, everything from drinking water to uh, tourism and the economy in, in many communities, as well as aquatic life and the health of the ecosystem generally. Lots in play, many dynamics, and to get a better handle on them, I spoke with the director of PEC's Watersheds program based in the Philadelphia office, Susan Myroff. What is the concern, I guess, uh, for Pennsylvania and for the Delaware River Basin broadly in terms of the ecological impacts? 
Well, the river system really relies on sort of managed flow. So the more water that comes downstream uh, helps support better water quality. It helps and affects our recreation opportunities. If it's restricted, it can impact our habitat. It can impact the ecological balance of the, of the water. It provides, in my understanding, higher dilution of the water that's in the river now. That helps moderate the temperatures. It helps increase things like dissolved oxygen, which aquatic life really needs, and it, it really impacts the water quality. So if that's restricted in any way, that can be a problem for the folks downstream in the basin. And the water temperature in particular is a big concern for, for trout, among other species. That, that's absolutely correct. Trout is a cold water fish, and uh, it's very sensitive to temperature changes, even one or two degrees. So again, if these streams and smaller tributaries uh, don't have enough base flow or surface flow, it can change the temperature of the creek, and that can, in fact, uh, determine whether or not the trout are able to live and reproduce. And are we, are we looking at possible economic impacts from that as well, given that there is a certain amount of New York State and Pennsylvania's economies in certain areas are dependent on trout fishing and outdoor recreation? Well, certainly, uh, when you think about water as in the recreation sense, certainly fishing and hunting are very huge economic drivers here in the state. But even just boating and kayaking, things that uh, you need nice water flow to enjoy. So yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, one of the impacts perhaps we don't think about, not just how it impacts the the aquatic life in the in the water, but it's how the overall system functions. So yeah, I think it would have a detrimental effect on our recreation. And I understand that there's also a concern potentially with flooding in some of these communities along the Delaware. Yeah, I guess my understanding, again, from the way the, the flow is managed, you know, they can actually control how much water is released. When there's a significant amount of rain, obviously you don't want to release too much because that could contribute to downstream flooding. So having these, these plans and these management agreements in place, I guess, allows them to look at how they release and when they release water. You know, you wouldn't obviously release water into a, I'll use a bathtub, for example. Mm-hmm. It's already filled up. You don't want to put more water in. It's going to overflow. So I think and that might be oversimplifying what's going on. But essentially, that's the control that you have with these reservoirs. Um, it not only helps maintain adequate flow when there's not enough rain, it can also be used as a way to mitigate too much flow coming through the system. And there's kind of really no way to talk about this without oversimplifying to a certain degree, so we can just stipulate that. Yes, yeah. But essentially, as I understand it, the FFMP is based on much more recent research and data giving the states and the various authorities and and agencies more flexibilities than the name implies to deal with conditions as they change, whereas by reverting back to the 1983 version of the agreement. It's much more rigid, I believe. So it's a certain number of gallons per day, period. Yeah, it's my understanding, again, is that it's called revision one dramatically reduces the amount of flow that is coming through the reservoirs. So as I mentioned before, that can have a detrimental impact on our aquatic life in our rivers and streams and also on the recreational resources. So as of June 1st, the agreement was not renewed. So we are officially back to revision one. However, I believe there was a contingency plan worked out under which New York City is voluntarily releasing a certain amount of water just on its own volition. I guess what I'm wondering is, is that going to be sufficient to avoid some of these impacts that we're concerned about? And how much time 
you know, have we bought with this sort of stopgap? Is that going to get us to the next agreement? Well, that's a really great question and one that I would say relies on an expert in that kind of response. But what I can say is that this is a natural system, so it's really hard to predict how the changes or delays and in, in the implementation would impact our, our streams. Everything's related to everything else, you know, the, the rainfall, the weather patterns, the climate, the temperature. So I, I certainly don't have the expertise to answer that question. It's a fabulously great question. But I think really you want to go back to the agreement that has been extended over the last five years because that has been worked out on by the experts and by the folks that really understand how this all works through the entire system. The other impact that I've been reading about has to do with the salt line. Can you explain what that is and why it's important? Yeah, the salt line really reflects the area of, the, remember the oceans are salt or saline, and the rivers are not. The rivers are typically freshwater. But there's a point where they meet, uh, the oceans and the, the Delaware River will meet. The salt line is usually where they measure a certain percentage of salinity in the water. And once it reaches a certain level, it sort of switches to a, a saline environment. My understanding is that line is very dependent on the base flow of the river. So again, if you have a lot of water, then that salt line will go, will, will revert. Yeah, yeah. If it starts creeping, I'll say northward. In other words, right now it's somewhere below Philadelphia area. If it starts to increase, what that, what that usually means, and again, I'm not a, a scientist, is that there's the water levels are dropping such that the saline water coming in from the ocean, which is a much larger body of water, you know, is starting to creep into the, in the river system at higher levels than there should be. So it kind of in the estuary sort of flows upstream a little bit? or Right, or right. That, that's essentially my understanding, yeah. So you need to be sending more volume downstream to kind of to offset hold, that. Hold that saline. I mean, the, the salinity really impacts the types of aquatic life and the types of fish and, that we see in the, in the stream. So it's a, it's a, it is a big deal. <laughs> so certain things cannot live in a, in a saline environment. So, um, so yes, yeah, so we like to see that, that line sort of stay where it historically should be. It also impacts things like our intakes for water and water treatment. So that's why it's, it's a big deal if that line starts to creep up. Yeah, at what point, as, as that creeps inland or upstream, it, does it become a concern for Philadelphia's drinking water or other communities around here that rely on the Delaware for drinking water? Well, I, w- I would imagine it depends on where their intakes are, where they will draw water in. So I, I would imagine that it's much, much more difficult to treat water that has a higher level of, of salt in it because we can't drink salt water. So again, I would not know exactly where those intakes are, I would, but I would imagine that's where it becomes an issue. And I guess the other consideration would be we're expecting sea level to rise going forward. What are what are the long-term consequences or implications that we're struggling with here? Well, I, yeah, I, if you think about that, I was kind of describing how the oceans are a lot bigger than our river systems, and the level of the oceans are rising, then you're getting more salt water into the freshwater ecosystems. I think it has major implications as you look in the future. Water treatment costs could skyrocket. I mean, there's just it's, it's, it's hugely expensive to convert salt to fresh water for drinking purposes. So I think just in that particular regard, that could be a major issue. Well, Susan, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Susan Myrov is program director for watersheds at PEC. Hi, this is David Woodwell, Pennsylvania Environmental Council, here today with John Walliser, our Senior Vice President for Legal and Government Affairs. Indeed. And uh, 
It is the end of June in Pennsylvania, which often makes it a silly season related to the state budget and how we move forward with the General Assembly sort of mandated to have a budget by the close of midnight on June 30th. But one of the other things that's now happening is that after probably a hiatus of a long time, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is becoming, it seems, much more involved in environmental issues, especially through interpretation of uh, Article 1, Section 27 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, which is known as the Environmental Rights Amendment, that was passed uh, by uh, two successive houses and senates, uh, general assemblies, and then a referendum by Pennsylvania voters in 1970-ish, and came into being in 1971, that says the people have a right to clean air, pure water, and to the preservation of the natural, scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment, period. Pennsylvania's public natural resources are a common property of all the people, including generations yet to come. As trustees of these resources, the Commonwealth shall conserve and maintain them for the benefit of all the people. Now, that's a piece of language in the Constitution that really, for most intents and purposes, lay dormant for actually decades and really got new life breathed into it around 2013 with some interpretations of the of Act 13 that was intended to put new rules in place for shale gas development. Uh, and the Supreme Court has now opined again on another case that we're going to talk with John about uh, that came down in the last week. And by the way, there is no legal advice included in this. If you have questions uh, going forward, consult an attorney. So these are not legal opinions that are coming out of, out of this. So. Mr. Wallace or sir, what is this case? <laughs> so you're right. Uh, in 1971, by nearly a four to one margin, uh, Pennsylvania voters approved uh, what's known as the Environmental Rights Amendment. Uh, it's something that was passed unanimously by the General Assembly in two successive years. Um, and like you said, it went dormant. Um, there were a few cases in the 70s that considered it, put some limitations on it, and then it was quickly forgotten. And then, as you said, in 2013, there was a Supreme Court decision, a plurality decision. So it wasn't a clear majority that sort of reinvigorated this and said, oh, yeah, there's this language that's in Article One of the Constitution, which is the Declaration of Rights up there with, you know, free speech, freedom of religion. And the court said this means something. We can't arbitrarily place limitations on it. It's in the Constitution. And that's how they started looking at uh, challenges that were brought before the court in 2013. It related to proposed environmental regulations, preemption of local land use controls with respect to unconventional oil and gas operations. Uh, and that has sort of filtered through a bunch of different Commonwealth lower court decisions. And it went back up to the Supreme Court. And last week they issued their opinion and they sort of reanimated it. And so 2013 is known as the Robinson Township decision. And That's that right. was around Robinson Township trying to say when, where, and how gas drilling could happen. There were a few things that the Supreme Court, on the premise of Article 1, Section 27, as well as substantive due process, struck down. They struck down preemption of local land use controls. They struck down some of the environmental protection provisions on unconventional gas operations because they felt they bound the Department of Environmental Protection's hands too tightly uh, in violation of the Constitution. And they sent a few things down on a few other issues that have slowly sort of filtered out uh, with respect to other aspects of that law, including disclosure. So in in Robinson was really the first time that 
the court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, started talking about this public trust doctrine and being a trustee of the resources. Because before that, if I'm remembering this correctly, basically the way Article One, Section 27 was dealt with was there was sort of a balancing test from Payne, a case called Payne versus Kassab, which I think was a highway case from the northeastern part of the state in the 70s. And that sort of said if the impacts of a decision clearly outweigh the benefits, then you shouldn't do it. But this, they flipped that around some here. Yeah, the express words of the court is that the pain test is, quote, unrelated to the text of Section 27 and the trust principles animating it, and it strips the constitutional provision of its meaning. Okay, so that's in the most recent case. That's in the case that came down last week. So what was that case about? So this was a challenge that was brought by the Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation regarding diversion of revenues derived from leasing of oil and gas interests on state land, also challenging the ability of the state to actually lease those rights. But this particular decision only weighs in on the royalty aspect. And some of that comes into play because there's this thing called the oil and gas lease fund that the General Assembly created that says revenues from oil and gas leases on state lands should go into this fund to pay for restoration for purchase for whatever of sort of state forest, state park lands. Right. It was enacted, I believe, in the 50s. Okay. And the, and what happened was the General Assembly started to, and governors, started to move money out of that fund toward the general fund. And that's what brought this lawsuit. Right. They were taking those revenues, dedicating a portion back to the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, primarily for operational activities as opposed to maintenance and improvement of the state parks, but also taking a significant portion of that revenue and using it for the general fund for general budgeting purposes. It seems like what's happening here is that there is life and heft being breathed into the amendment. And the reason I put the period in there when I first started reading it was there's that first sentence that talks about the rights to clean air, pure water, preservation of natural, natural scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment. We're still not sure exactly what that means. Yeah, there's a interesting line from the court um, that says, the explicit terms of the trust require the government to conserve and maintain the corpus of the trust. And I think getting more towards that first sentence, you know, the plain meaning of the, the terms conserve and maintain implicates a duty to prevent and remedy the degradation, diminution, or depletion of our public natural resources. So the pain test, as we were talking about earlier, was what was applied to that. That's now out the window, and we're sort of in the Wild West again with, okay, how do we interpret at least that first sentence? The, the court's decision really goes into depth on the latter part of the Environmental Rights Amendment, the trust aspect. All right, now, given how quickly this all moves, which means I'm being facetious, it's slow. Right. The last opinion, really, that from the Supreme Court was 2013, so that now there are probably a few more rounds to figure out what this all means. Well, the only thing that was remanded back down to the lower courts from this decision was further determination. There's a couple of different types of revenue that come in from the leasing of the oil and gas uh, rights. There, there are royalties, there are rents, there are bonus payments. So the Supreme Court said at least most of this money that comes out of the leasing belongs to the public trust and therefore needs to be used for those types of activities. It doesn't necessarily strictly have to be limited to our state parks and state forests, but it has to be for protection of our public natural resources and the environment. But there's some questions as to how do you categorize things like bonus payments and rents? Do those belong as part of the public trust or not? And that's what the lower courts are now going to have to figure out. So they're still, they've been given this charge by the Supreme Court to sort of 
within the realm of the money question, figure out what it all means. Mm -hmm. But more broadly in Pennsylvania, we haven't really had a public trust doctrine, have we? No, I don't. Uh, at least not with respect to the natural resources. No. Okay. This public trust doctrine, uh, it's an idea that's out there in a lot of states. It's not in Pennsylvania. But is there an easy way to explain it? Not really. But um, it basically is saying that this, the state has a fiduciary duty. They call it a, a duty of prudence, loyalty, and partiality to protect our public resources. So it means that, one, they have to enact laws that protect the environment and protect public resources, but also uh, they have a duty to make sure that those resources, at least for those that they manage, are maintained as well. All right. So that's another thing that will probably evolve over time is figuring out what it really means to be a trustee. Because the, the court spent a lot of time in 2013 in Robinson sort of jumping around that, but it didn't seem like they resolved it. No, and what's interesting is, you know, there are obviously a number of things that are proceeding through both the courts and Pennsylvania's Environmental Hearing Board, which uh, is sort of the, the forum of first appeal for permitting decisions. And it seems like right now there is a delay on anything moving forward, giving people time to react to the Supreme Court decision, file things like supplemental briefs, and try to weigh out, okay, what does this mean and how are we going to apply it in this instance? So in a lot of ways, this is, it doesn't settle all the questions. It it asks a lot of questions and it begs a number more. Yes. All right. So going forward, I think this is something that I think in terms of how Pennsylvania thinks and looks at environmental protections, this is one to which we would say stay tuned, see what the next cases are that are brought. Uh, and there are folks out there, I think, already thinking about that. Yeah, it will, likely won't be four decades, but we will have to wait a little okay. bit. The Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation case isn't the only environmental case they've dealt with lately. There are a couple of others, one for DCNR that includes sort of how you deal with properties long term and municipalities want to change in, change the use of them. But there's also another one relating to shale gas. Yeah, this is actually a pretty important decision. Um, so going back to that Robinson decision in 2013, when the Supreme Court invalidated a couple of different sections of that law, uh, there were some questions as to uh, whether other provisions could be enforced or implemented as a result of those invalidations. And one of them was a pretty important one. It was protection of public resources, uh, which, of course, touches upon the PEDF decision uh, with the public trust. But there was a challenge brought by an association challenging the Department of Environmental Protection's ability to enforce that section. And what it, what it says is that if a proposed oil and gas operation is operating anywhere near what's called a public resource, uh, it's enumerated in the legislation itself as to what constitutes a public resource, things like scenic rivers, state parks, public drinking water supplies, that the department has the right to put additional limitations on a permit. That was challenged, uh, and the Supreme Court, in its decision last week, said, no, that part is actually fully enforceable. They talked about how that was actually part of the 1984 Oil and Gas Act, which Act 13 replaced. And so that's going to allow the department to move forward with respect to that particular provision, protection of public resources, with regulation and enforcement. And so we are still, I mean, in terms of timing, one thing for folks to understand is this is now seven years in, at least, to trying to get these regulations. And if you go back to sort of 2010, and then under Governor Corbett, the governor's Marcella Shale Advisory Commission, you know, Act 13 going through challenges to it. So we're still, 
it's, this is part of how government and regulation and oversight works. And it's a long, drawn-out process in some cases. It's a long, messy process. And in fact, there is another legal challenge brought by another association currently on Act 13 with respect to other provisions. There has not been a final determination by the court in that instance, though. So it continues to evolve. So it anybody to evolve. Yeah, so when you think that you see an act passed and signed by a governor or a president or whatever, it's there's still a lot of long, long time to really figure out what that means and how it's put in place. Yeah, but hopefully not as long as a constitutional provision. Well, John, thank you very much for that. And uh, we will continue watching the Supreme Court, the General Assembly, and everybody else. So thank you all. David Woodwell is president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. John Walliser is senior vice president for legal and government affairs. And that's this week's Pennsylvania Legacies. Thanks for joining us this week. And uh, don't forget, you can always find the show and past episodes on our website, archived at peckpa.org. Of course, also easily available as a free subscription from the iTunes store, on SoundCloud, on Google Play, on uh, any number of podcast apps on your mobile device. It's uh, not hard to find us. We appreciate it when you subscribe. If you leave a uh, rating and review, it helps other listeners discover Pennsylvania Legacies and uh, makes the show stronger. Another way you can support us is by giving your feedback. We'd love to know what you make of what you're hearing, what you would like to hear more or less of. You can drop us a line by email at legacies, L-E-G-A-C-I-E-S, at peckpa.org. Again, that's legacies at peckpa.org. By the way, check out the big side project we've got going right now at change.com. That's C-H-4-N-G-E.com. This is a, an online resource that PEC has developed along with some of our partners to provide information, resources, and context for issues relating to regulation of methane from the oil and gas industry in Pennsylvania, something other states have increasingly taken on and that Pennsylvania is now wading into. There's a lot to know. There's a lot to learn. And we've created this website to to help guide you through that process. So check it out. You can find links, uh, of course, at our mothership homepage, peckpa.org. But the website I'm talking about is change.com. That's spelled C-H numeral 4, N-G-E.com. C-H-4, of course, the chemical symbol for methane. So check that out, and you can always find the links at pecpa.org. That's the show. We'll be back next Friday with another one. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.